electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and we begin with the major market news of the day. You see it right there behind me, the 10-year Treasury yield surging to 4.35%. That's the fresh 16-year high. We're just a hair below that level right now. The question is whether this is a real breakout or a late summer head fake. We have full team coverage this afternoon from the bond market to the impact on the mortgage market. You're going to want to hear about that and how Fed Chair Jay Powell might react in Jackson Hole later this week. Let's start with Rick Santelli out at the CME. And Rick, why today? Why now? Well, I think because technically we broke through some very key levels, not only on a daily basis last week, but on a weekly close Friday. Let's start at the beginning. There's a 24-hour chart, Kelly. You could clearly see that right around midnight, we really started to race higher. And the reason is, let's make a two-day chart. If you look at the hump in the middle of the left side of that chart there, that was the high session for Friday. Once we traded above that in the wee hours of the morning, we have not looked back. Virtually everything in our time zone has been above Friday's highs. And Friday, we basically closed a smidge above four and a quarter, which, if you go to the next chart, in my opinion, is the key to your question. It's about technical analysis and the fact that two-year yields did not close above their big spike high from March, and it took 10 years and 30-year bonds quite a while because this all occurred on October 24th. But nonetheless, this is going to be the fourth session in the row. We've closed above that key technical level, and that includes a Friday, which is a high-priority technical close. Now, if we go back to the last time we had closes of twos and tens at these levels. You have to go back to 2007. For 30-year bonds, it's 2011. And what's really interesting is today's going to be the first day 30-year bonds close above their key technical level from the 24th of October, and that was 4.38%. We've hopped right over it, but it doesn't change anything. It's still an aggressive close, and you asked whether it's a move or just year end or just something uh, towards the end of summer. I think it's already been the type of move technicians are capitalizing on for no other reason other than this chart. Twos to tens. I cannot tell you how many traders the last three months have told me the next big move on yield curves is going to be steepening. And they were spot on yep. because at the last day of July, we we're at minus 60, excuse me, minus 91. We're currently at minus 64. So we've de-inverted or steepened quite a bit and pretty much all long-dated moves. The only thing I want to mention, Rick, for people who look at that and go, hey, we're steepening again. The yield curve isn't as inverted and therefore we're all, you know, it's going to be fine. Well, usually once, you know, if if it's been inverted, then it starts disinverting. That's usually the bad kind of disinversion that comes before the actual economic slowdown. So it's hard to feel too good about that. I couldn't agree more. It's not the type of thing where it's a closed system. When it goes uh, inverted, it's going to mean potentially a recession. And as you become less inverted, less recession, it doesn't work that way. You're exactly correct. There can be ways where the curve would 
de, uh, de-lever or re-steepen, but currently we are not seeing that type of trade. All right. So, in, in Rick, just to put a point on it, so basically the only real reason that you're hearing for why this is happening now is basically because it's been happening for the last couple of weeks. But when I think about overnight catalysts from China to you name it, it's not as if something really jumps out. No, I think it's a cumulative effect. Yeah. There are handfuls of reasons for this market move. I do think China is one of the biggies because that, along with Fitch and Moody's, have really refocused on the issue of debt and True. how agonizing that treats growth. And anyone who doesn't agree with that, just look at the way the market's pricing. All right, Rick, thank you. Rick Santelli, we appreciate it. Now, most importantly, maybe here at home, the surging tenure means that mortgage rates are also probably touching new highs. Diana Olick brings us those latest details. Diana, what's the number? Well, Kelly, as you know, mortgage rates loosely follow the yield on the 10-year Treasury, so no surprise. Here it is. The average rate on the popular 30-year fix touched 7.48% this morning. That, according to Mortgage News Daily, and that is the highest since December of 2000, so 23 years. Last time, last year at this time, it was around 5.5%. Home prices had peaked in July of last year, but they've started gaining again in the past few months, and all that just adds insult to injury for potential home buyers who not only can't find anything to buy, but are now seeing affordability get crushed. So just to do the math, if you're buying a $400,000 home today with 20% down on a 30-year fixed, your monthly payment of principal and interest is roughly $420 higher, that is monthly, than it was a year ago. More borrowers are now opting for adjustable rate loans. The average on a five-year arm last week was 6.2%. That, according to the MBA, the arm share of applications rose to 7%. And just as a comparison, back in 2020, when rates were setting multiple record lows, that share of arm loans was less than 2%. Kelly? And yet, you know, I have some friends who, again, got outbid. They had a house that was going into attorney review, got outbid, I think, twice. This was just in the last couple of weeks with rates where they are. It's just extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, people are having to redo what they can afford. But for sure, there is still pent-up demand for housing, and there's just not enough. And then you add on that that all the folks who might have wanted to sell their house are now saying, well, I have a 3% rate. Why? I'm, it's just getting worse and worse every day. First, why would I trade it for 6%? Now, why would I trade it for 7.5%? All right, 7.48%, just a hair below 7.5%. For all intents and purposes, 7.5%. Diana, thanks for bringing that to us. We appreciate it. Diana Olick. So what will the impact on the, uh, what will the impact the bond market and the mortgage rates we are looking at have on the Fed's next move? We're going to ask Steve Leisman. He's got the big look ahead to this week at Jackson Hole. And Steve, these questions just took on new urgency, I think. Yeah, it is really a new question that's emerged, uh, Kelly, ahead of this Jackson Hole Summit. How are th- how's the surge in higher long-end yields going to play in the mountains? Since mid-July, as a result of bigger-than-expected Treasury issuance, uh, you've had stronger economic growth and a Fitch downgrade. The 10-year yield has risen 60 basis points. Remember that number, because look at this one. Amid this move, the market's outlook for the year-end Fed funds rate hasn't budged, suggesting the market does not believe higher long-end years are going to push the Fed either way, either down or up. What has moved is the outlook for next year's funds rate, with the year-end 2024 funds rate rising almost 60 basis points from mid-July, at least in part a sign that the Fed has been successful in convincing the market it's going to remain higher for longer, though the market still has more cuts built in than the Fed has. 
Uh, but the Fed is going to have to ponder if this is more than it wants on the long end. Those 7% plus mortgage rates Diana was talking about, they could be crippling for the housing market. Banks could be under renewed pressure like they were back in March. And companies are going to have to refinance those bargain basement debt rates they had from the pandemic into much higher yielding paper over the next several years. Or this could be maybe exactly what the Fed wants, and it would see these yields as appropriate amid a world of higher growth and higher inflation and Kelly, of course, maybe a higher real neutral rate. Oh, oh, no, you didn't. You didn't go there. You didn't. I was looking up academic paper titles that have our star puns, and I don't think you can top Richmond yes. Fed, the fault in our star from 2018. Yeah. Okay. I want you. I punned. I punned about that long before they did. I just want you to know because I would never leave a good pun. But there is a paper out recently by a couple of economists at Vanguard uh, that was out last week. I want to say sometime at the end of last week, talking about a potential one and a half percent real funds rate versus the Fed's long rate of zero point five percent. Layer on top of that, this long-held uh, uh, idea from Jeff Lacker that the equilibrium R-star can move over time, and we might right now at least right. be in a world of a higher R-star. But here, okay, I'm going to quick Kelly aside, indulge me, Steve, as uh, Michael just said. So we have now an op-ed by, um, oh, who's our friend, uh, in the Wall Street Journal today calling for the Fed to raise uh, its uh, for calling for the Fed. Jason Furman. Thank you, Jason Furman. <laughs> yeah. It has come to me. Yeah. Uh, saying that the Fed should raise its inflation target to 3% over the next 10 years. And I don't, that, the entire basis of that argument is that you want more cushion in a zero rate world. And yet all of these academics are at the same time arguing we're no longer in that zero rate world because, you know, all the arson and all this stuff is structurally higher. This feels like exactly the wrong time to raise a, a price target that was supposed to cushion us to the downside when we're talking about the actual sort of impetus now maybe pushing us higher. So I'm old school on this for two reasons. One is I think it's very bad form for the Federal Reserve to change the target, at least before it hit it. It may be down the road. It hits 2%, stays at 2% or under 2%. It may have the, 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 the luxury or the ability to change it. The other thing is I'm pretty sure that's the way Powell feels, and I think my ability to communicate that is probably the most important thing I can do rather than what I think. I'm pretty sure that's what Powell feels. And, uh, Kelly, indulging your inner econ geek is one of the great pleasures of my job, so keep going. <laughs> uh, wait, wait, I need those name prompts here and there. Steve, thank you very much. A lot more to come. We really appreciate it. Our Steve Leisman, who will be reporting from Jackson Hole later this week. Let's turn to my next guest, who is a buyer of short-term bonds here, but is warning you do need to stay diversified, especially if the Fed begins to cut rates as early as next year. Here on set with me is Michael Cagino. He is president and portfolio manager of the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds. First of all, Michael, welcome. I think it's the first time since COVID you've been back here. So. Pre-COVID, 2019. Yes, we appreciate it. I, yep. You know, you don't have to get into the, like, the R-star, like all of these econ geeky things, but I, I guess they, the, they all come back to this question, which the tenure is kind of pressing upon us today, which is, where are interest rates really headed and what would your investment advice be? Well, I think they're likely going to be higher for longer, roughly where we are. I mean, I think the big question that we haven't really talked about yet is the timing. The Fed wants 2%. Somebody else says 3%. Great. But when? 
And, and are they willing to raise rates to a point to choke off economic growth, which we seem to be having, to get to 2% quicker rather than later? I don't know the answer to that question, um, but that's a legitimate one. And so, you know, for investors, I think this is all interesting. If you're a very conservative investor, mm-hmm. you have your, your CDs at 5%, 4.5%. You don't have to do much. We think you can do better through a diversified portfolio. Yeah. Um, if you have conviction in equities, there's certainly arguments to be made there. Mm-hmm. There's been a great stock market. And, uh, and equities do have some competition for bond yields right now. It feels like a strange world where we can make the case for both bonds and equities at the same time. But maybe it's just the flip side of what happened in, in the 2010s, where you could also uh, bonds and equities at the same time, just, again, for different reasons today, I guess. We've been doing the seesaw thing all year between bond investors and equity investors. The equity investor sees the Fed being done or close to it. Multiples are, are good. They're reasonable. There's the, the um, excitement of AI and all these growth stories out there. And so that's why equities have bled up, because there's been an absence of real negative news. Do you news. think multiples are reasonable, though? Because they seem high by historical standards, not least, not least. And this is the part I don't understand the most about this whole thing. They seem to be high relative to interest rates. You know, it's so odd that we'd say we're going to go from zero to five and that the stock market multiple is going to go up and be near its historical highs. That seems so strange to the me. Broad mar- the broad market multiple is no longer as cheap as it was, no question, but there are definitely some opportunities that are below market multiples. I think energy, natural resources, real estate investment trusts. I mean, now you have to have a strong stomach to do that, but there are opportunities there. The bond investor sees tightening credit. It sees an inverted yield curve. It sees the Fed saying that they might have to raise more quickly and a recession. And so, and that's that, seesaw battle that we're having. And it tends to change on headline risk week to week. Let me maybe ask a question differently. So for those who in the past kind of owned bonds but traded stocks, should you do the opposite now where you own stocks but you trade bonds, right? You know, the yields being as high as they are feels kind of like an opportunity to pick up some extra cash. I don't know how, how, how far out on the curve you'd go, but it doesn't feel like anyone really wants to say, oh yeah, I want to own bonds you know, for the long run here, it's more just, does this feel like the kind of moment to strike while the iron's still hot, you know, depending on what happens next year? Well, this gets to the investor that was buying equities for yield several years ago, right? Mm. They no longer have to do that. And so they they have to be a true equity investor to want equities. When you look at the comparable yields between, let's say, earnings on the S&P 500 and bond yields right now, if you're a growth investor, you're going to look at that and say, well, they're comparable, but I like the growth perspective and the long-term nature of growth, so I'm going to weight it that way. Right. If you're more conservative or you have liquidity needs going the other way, you take your 4 or 5% and short duration, and you go with that until you have more clarity. Right, although it's not that tax efficient, but what, what do you do about that piece of it? It just... It is what it is. You get what you get. Great point. Dividends are more tax efficient than, than interest income. Yeah. yeah. So for the person who might be more interested in nothing, you can tilt that way. So yeah. you, do have, you mentioned energy, you mentioned REITs, but you also have some stocks in particular that jump out to you here. What are they and why? Well, on the equity side, we tend to invest in a broad array of stocks, right? There's some growth. There's some what people would consider value-oriented names. I mean, some names that we like on the growth side are obviously in the tech area, um, semiconductors. We, st- we think they're rich. Um, NVIDIA, we obviously we own that. It's rich. I don't know if I'd buy it now, but on a longer-term pullback, I probably would because I think a lo- it's a longer-term story. Um, uh, Broadcom's another name we own that's trading at a much more reasonable level, still a little high based on maybe the market multiple, but but another great growth story there. Then we've got energy, something like a Chevron, mm-hmm. a big diversified energy story, um, Freeport McMoran, which is a, a copper play, which we think is really still undervalued in the long term. And that company tends to 
you know, when, when copper prices go up, the money drops to the bottom line. Dividend yields go up. Special dividends go up. And we think that that broader story is a multi-year one. You could almost argue it's a copper gold play. And I can't let you leave without mentioning gold. And, and I don't know how big, you know, we're talking. Like, what is it? I haven't paid attention lately, uh, but gold kind of just sitting around these levels. Well, it's come off its highs, and, and I think rightfully so, given the uncertainty of the interest rate environment and the, and the, the strength of the dollar. The dollar has been very, very high lately, and that tends to put the dampers on gold. Our view in the long term is that it's going to be more valuable years from now than right now. I think the dollar is at a high. It's going to come off from that globally at some point. The Fed at some point is going to stop raising rates and likely will cut if there's a recession issue out there. Those are bullish for gold, and gold tends to do pretty well if you have a recessionary environment for, for many of those reasons. All right. A little bit of everything. Absolutely. <laughs> Michael, thanks so much. We appreciate it today. Thanks, Kelly. Michael Cogito with the Permanent Portfolio. We've got a ton more on deck for Jackson Hole later this week with interviews with Philly Fed President Patrick Harker, Cleveland Fed's Loretta Mester. That will all kick off Thursday on CNBC. You don't want to miss it. And coming up here, a sort of surprise rate cut out of China. We'll ask one China watcher what's happening on the front lines of the property sector there as the MSCI China ETF is having its worst month in nearly a year. Plus a ton of names on deck to report earnings this week from NVIDIA to Peloton. We'll preview some of the retailers out right away like Lowe's and Macy's. That's coming up in earnings exchange. And as we go to break, let's get a quick check on the markets where we see the Dow under pressure by about 125 points, a third of 1%. But the S&P is higher by eight. The Nasdaq is up almost 1% today. And the Russell is down half a percent, 434 on your tenure. That's the number of the day. We're back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. China's central bank just cut its one-year benchmark lending rate for the second time in three months. The reduction was more modest than expected, though, showing China's reluctance to take more forceful measures to reverse their economic slowdown. And Chinese stocks, well, they extended their losses on the news, with the Hang Seng down nearly 2 percent, Shanghai Composite a little over 1 percent. Let's get some perspective here from Brendan Ahern. He's the CIO of Crane Shares and China Market Research Group founder Sean Ryan, who joins us from Shanghai. It's great to see you both again. Brendan, I'll let you give the, the glass half full argument. And uh, I, I, listen, I, I, I just I read the reporting from Lingling and others, and you just think they they don't want to do big stimulus. And I'm not sure what else the bull case rests on at this point. Yeah, they've certainly taken an incremental um, as opposed to a bazooka type approach that they've slowly implemented reforms, but they're really not willing to pull the Band-Aid. I think some of that's driven by Fed policy, it's driven by some of the geopolitical uh, macro narrative, a little bit about the global economy slowing. So they're taking this incremental approach, which obviously has left investors a little wanting. It is worth noting, Kelly, that you know, KWEB is still more than 45% off its October lows from last year. So we've wow. simply given up some of these gains. And certainly, as, as your previous guest noted, the strong dollar has been a real headwind for uh, non-U.S. equities in general, including China. Yeah, although what, just one more to follow up on this. We were speaking with Derek Scissors the other day. I think it was uh, Scissors who said, look, the Chinese stock market peaked in 2007. This just isn't a good place to put your capital. Yeah, I think our long-running argument has been that the China proxies 
you know, MSCI Emerging Markets, MSCI China, 10 years ago had 11% and 2% in tech. So these were really value proxies, 50% financials and energy during a period of great growth outperformance. And that's really why we developed KWeb, was it gives investors an element of the growth in China's economy, which is simply not captured by broad indices like broad EM and broad China. Yeah, that's fair. Sean, I'll turn to you. You're back in Shanghai. I'm very eager to hear how you would describe things on the ground there. What's going on with the property sector? What's the mood generally? Well, Kelly, it's great to be back since I saw you last month in the studio. As you said, I'm back here in China. And right now, we're facing a crisis of confidence. It's not a crisis of liquidity, which is why the government isn't lowering interest rates too much, because at the end of the day, there's no demand, both from consumers and from companies to borrow money because they don't think that the credit, they can't get that money to work anywhere. People are really scared. Now, I painted a really negative position last month when I spoke with you and Ty Kelly. Now it's gotten even worse. There are really three reasons why uh, consumers and companies right now are even more nervous than before. The first is the real estate sector. You saw Soho, a major property developer, just announced that they had 93% profit drop year on year. That's off of a terrible 2022. And the big elephant in the room is what's going to happen with Country Garden, which was the largest real estate developer in China with over 3,000 different projects. They have missed paying bonds on a coupon last month. That sent a lot of ripples throughout the marketplace. Investors ought to be really cautious about getting uh, exposure to China in the next two to three week period. You know, consumers now are nervous. They're cutting back. Some of the numbers might not be great for the coming two to three weeks. Well, I'm looking through your notes, Sean, and Brendan, I'll put this question to you. There are some bright spots, you know. Um, he spoke with a lot of real estate agents and consumers, uh, seeing a lot of trade down at restaurants, but says tourism remains a bright spot. Uh, EVs, the EV brands, BYD, battery maker, cattle still strong. Um, some, you know, and, and maybe we're getting to the valuation point at which you can look at some of the bigger name online retailers. What would you say in response to that, Brendan? I think in general, we've known that this real estate issue is not a short-term fix. This is going to linger, and it's going to be Evergrande. It's going to be Country Garden. It's going to be a Sunak. And there's a whole host of these distressed property developers that are continually going to flare up and have problems for years to come. It's the, the key is that the Chinese government wakes up every day with one mission, which is stability. And are they going to allow real estate to unfold into the quote unquote China economic, you know, Lehman moment, this huge class? I don't think so. And I don't think any investor in China believes that this is going to unwind itself in some catastrophic matter. So, so yes, it's a, it's a problem. These companies are problematic. And it's worth noting the Chinese government isn't going to save them. Uh, you know, we threw a bone to a lot of financial companies when they got in trouble and Chinese government's not going to do it. So, yes, I mean, consumer confidence, to Sean's point, is the problem. That's the problem with real estate. It's weighing on consumer confidence, which means con domestic consumption remains weak, yeah. which is why they need to get property prices higher. You're going to see that done on the local level. And we do believe domestic consumption, uh, that the companies within KWeb can benefit as consumer confidence as consumption comes back. And certainly, you know, we're still in the thick of earnings season. We got Badu tomorrow right. and Meduan and NetEase on Thursday. Yeah, we're going to have more on Baidu in a moment. Sean, you were bullish on China for 25 years, one of the biggest bulls before you became bearish during the pandemic. Are you looking, are we, are we going to be bearish for 25 years too? Or, or what, what, what are you looking for? What would it take for you to, to kind of see more, uh, more bright spots on the horizon there? 
The next three to six months, Kelly, are going to remain quite rocky. You saw retail sales only went up 2.5% in July. Consumers are saying, you know, we're going to hold off buying the big ticket items like autos, um, like houses. I think that the luxury sector could be in for a little bit of rough waters, too. I'm not going to turn bearish in the next three to six months. But I do think in 2024, maybe at the end of Q1, things can get a little bit better. And I think the key is what's going to happen with multinationals. Right now, they're just not investing into China. Um, they're scared. They're taking a wait-and-see attitude about the geopolitical tension in 2023. But I'm starting to talk with a lot of global CEOs of Fortune 500 firms, and they're starting to say, maybe we should invest in 2024 and Q1 and Q2. That could jazz up the economy a little bit. I also think you're going to see a surprise on the positive side on some numbers like tourism. Um, I'm actually sitting in a Park Hyatt hotel right now. The place is packed. Um, we've been talking with ho hotels. They're seeing numbers that are as good, if not stronger, than 2019. Macau is also booming, so I'd be looking at Galaxy, Sands, and the casinos right there. So I think if you start to see some numbers from multinationals like a Hyatt, like a Marriott, uh, like a Lululemon, that are reasonably good, then I think there's going to be confidence by multinationals to invest in 2024. Uh, the second thing, hopefully we're going to see an end to the relentless attacks by the Biden administration on China. Last week, they just imposed more sanctions and are more bans on American investors, venture capitalists investing into high-tech sectors like semiconductors and artificial intelligence. Right. We should not underestimate the geopolitical tension that's weighing on consumer and business sentiment in China. If we can see sort of a detente between the two countries, maybe the economy will get going. But I don't see, I'm not hopeful in the next three to six months. That's and frankly, I'm not hopeful for the next year. All right, Sean, thank you. Sean, Ryan, Brendan Ahern, we really appreciate it. And that's the perfect segue uh, to our next discussion because investors here at home are trying to figure out whether their company's China exposure is a good or bad thing to hang on to. We turn to Seema Modi for those details, Seema. Well, Kelly, some of the biggest companies in America have been challenged by the ongoing troubles in China. After banking on a turnaround, executives have had to scale back their expectations while at the same time, hold out for potential stimulus. The Council on Foreign Relations China team, they say don't hold your breath, writing that the appetite for big stimulus is not there as Beijing relies on so-called precision-guided monetary tools that focus on targeted credit easing. Evercore ISI strategists warning clients over the weekend that if China's economic backdrop worsens, S&P 500 companies with more than 20% revenue in China could be at risk of seeing investors scale back their exposure. They point to names like Intel, Tesla, Advanced Micro Devices, Western Digital, among others. Most of these stocks are housed in CNBC's China Trade Index, which you can see here has underperformed this year, up just 5% compared to the S&P 500's 14% rise. And fund flows data from Roundhill Investments shows that market participants continue to diversify their holdings, with China bringing in less than a billion dollars so far, while India-related ETFs have seen inflows of $1.8 billion, Japan at the top at $5.8 billion, which also tells you a story, Kelly. I thought that was fascinating what Sean said, that multinationals are going to be one of the keys to which way China goes over the night. And it's funny because 
were, you know, they want the multinationals to invest first, but the multinationals are waiting for better numbers before they, you know, obviously want to make these big investments. So it's a little bit of a waiting game. Yeah, and we're talking about 10 to 15 years of investment. So it's not an easy market to just pull out of. At the same time, there are a number of bright spots. Companies like Starbucks this past earnings season talking about how they're seeing the highest number of 90-day active users that they have ever seen at over 20 million Starbucks rewards customers. Booking Holdings CEO Glenn Fogel a couple weeks ago referencing the China outbound travel stories starting to gain momentum. So there are these strategic uh, selective stories yeah. within the consumer um, space that is holding out. Yeah, pockets, uh, pockets for sure. Yes. Seema, thank you. Thanks. We appreciate it. Seema Modi. Still ahead, SoftBank's arm is expected to file to go public today with its valuation front and center. We'll get all the details coming up in Tech Check. The exchange is back after this. Stay with us. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Amazing now the whole country is like linked into it, and they have a... News update. After bringing high winds and heavy rain to Southern California, Tropical Storm Hillary was downgraded yet again, but it is still threatening central Nevada with potential flooding and moving towards Oregon and even Idaho. National Weather Service reports one to five inches of rain expected across portions of the Pacific Northwest through Tuesday morning, which could result in more significant flooding. The Wall Street Journal reports that private equity firm Rourke Capital is close to finalizing a deal to buy Subway, the chain of restaurants. Sources tell the Journal that the $9.6 billion deal could close this week. The company reportedly began exploring a sale back in January. The chain has been owned by its two founding families for more than five decades. Are you looking for a new car under $20,000? Well, there were at least a dozen small cars that met that criteria just five years ago. But prices for most vehicles, new or used, have soared since the start of the pandemic. So now there is just one, the Mitsubishi Mirage under 20 grand, and maybe not for long. Reports suggest it's being discontinued after the 2024 model year. Kelly, back to you. See you in a little bit. Wow, the only new car under 20K post-pandemic. Get them while they're hot. Tyler, thanks. Coming up, three big-name retailers are set to report before the bell tomorrow. We'll get the numbers and narrative. And I'm going to sneak in a fourth. It's, it's kind of unrelated, but we're going to ask uh, Kilberg anyway. Before we head to break, let's also get some show and tell, where we show you a chart and tell the story. Palo Alto Networks leading the S&P and on pace for its best day in two years. How amusing and ironic is this whole story? They reported a beat on earnings and a slight miss on revenue on that infamous Friday late afternoon summer earnings report. After all the attention, CEO Nikesh Arora tweeted that more than 5,000 people dialed into their earnings call. That's five times the average over the past five years. Here's what he told Jim Cramer about the timing. We're trying to make sure we get our earnings out there and give a full year forecast. But you want to give it a longer term context because there's lots of uncertainty in macro. Also, we're seeing security companies a bit all over the place. So we want to make sure people see us as, as who we are, which is different. So we want to get that done. Two, uh, we have about 5,000 people in Vegas 
who are right now getting pumped up to go deliver a phenomenal FY24 like they have at FY23. Wanted to make sure we didn't have to stand there and hum and haw about what our results are likely to be. So honestly, it only worked out that we could do this on a Friday. Uh, so we did. I think we call these sound bites from the future because you can watch the full interview tonight on Mad Money at 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, hopefully more companies don't think that Friday night's the way to go. We're back after this. Welcome back. Quick market flash. Sentinel One jumping sharply and briefly halted for volatility in just the last few minutes here. Reuters reporting the cybersecurity company is exploring a potential sale. Early interest in a deal hasn't met the company's expectations, according to the report. Talks could end without a deal, but investors are hopeful the shares are up about 15 percent right now. Meantime, earnings season is winding down, but there are still some big names to report. We're looking at Macy's, Lowe's, and Baidu in today's earnings exchange. Here for our trades is KKM founder and CEO Jeff Kilberg. Jeff, welcome. We're going to start with Baidu, kind of the oddball of the bunch, but it might help us glean more about China's economy right now on pace for its worst month of the year as that recovery really fails to materialize. Shares down about 20%. The search company suffering from the weak ad market, but state-backed investment in AI as part of China's latest five-year plan, well... Jeff, that could be a bright spot. What do you do with the stock here? You know, I think that is the bright spot, Kelly. And I think you want to be a buyer here. Yes, despite the fact it looks like it's in a free fall, like no bungee cord attached in the last month. I think what you have to understand is that it's not just a China pure play. It's not just because of COVID zero policies. And of course, the COVID zero policies had wild ramifications, implications as the system, the economy over in China just has not rebooted the way it has in the U.S. But I think it's the AI play you talked about. I think that really presents an opportunity for Baidu. It is the second or, uh, you know, world's largest search engine. So I think at the end of the day, I know the all-time high on this is up at $354. So we're dramatically off that. But I think technically it really lines up. If we can get this stock back above $130, it's going to get some footing. It's going to get some support. And if we actually get some form of optimism out of China, which we've had none, absolutely zero, you couple that with the AI enthusiasm we had in the Magnificent Seven all year, Baidu does look attractive down here, but I think you have to really manage this risk because this is volatile, high beta stock. All right. You're looking for 130. It's at 124, so we'll see if it gets that bounce today. And we'll move on to Lowe's. Meantime, as we turn our attention to a couple of retailers here, Lowe's shares are on pace for their worst month in about a year, down about 7%. They lowered full-year earnings and sales guidance back in May. They're expecting comps to fall between 2 and 4% from last year. But with record high home equity, good gauge for consumer spending, people feel richer, and the housing shortage. Will the renovation boom continue? Jeff, what do you think? The shares are up about 9% so far this year. Well, I, I think Lowe's is interesting. I actually want to be a seller here, and I'm not going to beat up Lowe's by any means because it has outperformed Home Depot. I own Home Depot. Hmm. If you look longer term, Home Depot, which is three times the market cap, I want to own that. But Lowe's is fascinating because you're right, Kelly. From a year previous quarter revenue, they're looking for nearly $25 billion. That's down about 10% from the previous year. So there has been a stronger than expected pullback in home renovation. I think interest rates are trapping a lot of people in their homes. But I think if you look at a mean reversion, we talk a lot about trading in pairs trade. So if you own Home Depot and you've been a laggard and you've owned Lowe's, I think this is where you sell it. And I think really interesting, the 2-day moving average, which is just at $209, if earnings disappoints and if you own Lowe's, I think that's where you take profits. That's where you switch over.
open to Home Depot. And this is more of a trade. It's not beating up lows. The stock is at a you know, decent run. But at the end of the day, it's just too high beta, too small of a stock, as we're seeing a lot of confusion about the real estate market currently. All right. So you're well, sort of watching that 209 level, that 200 day. You're a seller, $8 below where we are right now. So that's a good number to, round number to keep an eye on. And finally, yes. Macy's, I mean, former behemoth, this, this market cap has just dwindled. It's seen three double-digit monthly slides this year. It's on pace for a fourth. And the strength of the consumer is one question. Buyers are also taking on more debt in the face of higher prices. And interestingly, some Macy's vendors are already reporting some price squeamishness. I'm surprised. Are you a buyer here, Jeff? I am a trader and I am a buyer here. Now, yes, you're absolutely right. This is almost a micro cap. Just kidding. It's still a $4 billion company, but a long way away from being the department store it was. I actually want to own Nordstrom. And if you already own Macy's, that's fine. I think Nordstrom gives you a little more diversification. But you're right. If you look at a chart, Kelly, under $13, Look out below. So I think you can be a buyer here, but whenever we buy a stock this high of volatility, I think you have to understand you need to buy it with a stop. So as soon as you buy it here, if you're going to buy it here, you have to put that stop in because under $13, it could be a free-for-all. And that's where you have to understand this is not a long-term investment. This is a trade. And this could be some profit really short-term if you own Macy's going in earnings. All right. So that leaves about $2 of cushion to the downside before you tell people to pull yep. the ripcord. Um, I just got to quickly ask you about Zoom because I continue to find it relentlessly fascinating, especially, you know, they're pulling people back to the office now at Zoom's corporate headquarters. The stock is just about unch year-to-date. It is, and it's only down 77% from the peak of COVID. So it has had just a hellacious move lower. And this was really the darling during COVID when everyone was not, not only working on Zoom, we were having cocktails on Zoom. Sure. So I think Zoom right here is just fascinating because at $20 billion, it's kind of a takeover target. But with the one thing that gives a little bit of optimism why I'd look to trade and buy this stock, yes, Kelly, another odd uh, buy by myself. But I think you have to understand that the AI, they're racing to make new artificial intelligence tools to enhance their platform. That could be attractive to someone like Sir Elon Musk, who mm. wants to incorporate more and more into his super app X. So I think Zoom is attractive here, despite the fact it's been decimated. All right. I believe they report tonight. If I'm hearing you right, you're saying there's still a $20 billion market cap. That's shocking to me. Hard to believe. Impressive. All right. We'll see if they can take it for a trade. Jeff, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. See you, Kelly. Jeff Kilberg. Still to come, Tesla, Amazon, and Seagate are all among some of the most expensive stocks in the S&P 500. Is that a warning sign? We'll dive into it. But first, SoftBank-owned Arm is expected to file for a NASDAQ IPO this afternoon. What to expect and whether Arm has the AI prowess it promises next. Before we go to break, to also take a look at the COVID vaccine makers. Novavax shares are up about 17%. Moderna is up nearly 10%. BioNTech almost up almost 7% as new variants of that virus emerge here in the U.S. All three are still well off their year highs, but keep an eye here as we hope to see not so much COVID action, uh, but some moves that are rewarding those investors. We're back after this. Welcome back. SoftBank's chip designer Arm is preparing to go public in what would be the biggest U.S. listing in almost two years. Deirdre Bosa is here with the timeline and what to watch for in today's mm -hmm. tech check. And Deirdre, we're expecting to get the filing this afternoon. Is that right? 
That is what I'm hearing. And it's a big deal. It's how that is received by investors, um, how they're going to digest it will tell us a lot, not just about how the market feels about ARM, but the IPO market at large. So it will be an F1 because it's a foreign filing. Remember that ARM is headquartered in the UK. And it was a little bit controversial that it decided to list here in the US. Um, So that filing, it will reveal its financials, its risk profile, its key stakes, anchor investors. We've heard that Companies from uh, NVIDIA to Intel to even Amazon could be among those strategic partners. So investors will be really curious, and that could also provide somewhat of a halo effect, drum up more interest, because the stakes are very high for SoftBank. Remember that it bought this company back in 2016 for $31 billion. Its most recent transaction valued it at $64 billion. So that would be a huge windfall for Masasan, who, remember, is going out again on the offensive. He wants to invest in more artificial intelligence uh, companies. And the key question for ARM and what kind of valuation it's going to ultimately fetch is, is this an AI-adjacent company or an AI-centric company? How involved is it in this space at a time when investors are kind of in show-me mode? They don't want to hear about how it's going to you know, capitalize on AI in the future. It wants to know how companies are doing it right now. Yeah, and what did you say about why they picked the U.S. instead of the U.K.? And I love also, it's the NASDAQ versus the NICE and the U.S. versus the U.K. All these, all these stories we haven't been able to talk about in a couple of years' I know. time. It's, it's been 18 months, right, since we've been able to talk about IPO stories. And I mean, hey, if ARM is successful, that could open the window for many more. But it's always this debate, NASDAQ or NICE, who is going to be your left lead on the IPO filing? Um, Why it chose the UK over the US? I mean, it's the reason a lot of companies, right? It's just a bigger market, bigger capital markets. It's sort of also seen as having all the glory as well. So it was seen as a loss for the UK that it couldn't keep that listing there. We went through this in another era with Hong Kong versus New York. And it'll be interesting after an 18 month freeze, sort of which IPO markets, if that's going to happen, which international markets heat up quickest? Do we know the ticker yet? Is it weird that that's the thing I look forward to the most? You know, it's got to be ARM H. Wasn't that in the past? Wasn't it ARM? Wasn't it? I think it was ARM H. Yeah, I wonder if they go the same way. I mean, how do you not just do I know. ARM? Let, but I don't. Is that taken now? Or is a, AI's taken by our friends over at uh, at what should we call it? Yeah, no, AI RM. I don't know. We'll see. But it's there's part of ARMP. The fun. No, ARMR. But I guess you need another letter. That's, exactly. That's the question. <laughs> they don't want harm anyway. Uh, dear Dred, thank you very much <laughs> for now. We look forward to getting those details later from our dear Jabosa. And still to come, Tesla is having a rough month, down about 16% so far in August. The end of last month was also when one of our strategists said this name would outperform it over the next year. And these shares are down just 3% by comparison. We'll get an update on the other names he's buying now next. And also take a quick look at shares of Sweetgreen popping after the company announced last hour. It is expanding its executive team. It's up 5% today. The shares have struggled since their debut in November of 2021. They're down about 78%, $14 a share at the moment. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. A couple of weeks ago, my next guest made the provocative call that Verizon, yes, Verizon, will outperform Tesla over the next year. And so far, so good. Verizon's down about 3% since then, so is the market, while Tesla is down 16% despite today's little turn up. So is he closing this pair trade or sticking with it as Tesla stock rebounds? Well, the key, he says, is valuation. Let's welcome back Chris Grisanti, chief equity strategist at MAI Capital Management. It's good to see you again, Chris. Welcome. 
Thank you, Kelly. It's good to be with you, as always. Yeah, I don't think you're the kind of guy who's going to take off a trade after one month, but it's worked out pretty. Maybe it's met your target in advance. Well, being down 3% isn't my idea of a great trade yet, but, but, <laughs> but I think... Uh, I think over the year, I think Verizon stands a terrific chance even continuing to beat Tesla from here. And it, it's more, honestly, a statement about the markets and the economy than it is about, about these, these two companies. So to explain that and, and where valuation sure. fits into that. Sure, sure. So the valuation, the, the, the first half of 2023 uh, left stocks like Verizon completely behind. And like a year ago when mortgage rates started to go up and the home builders were absolutely demolished. That's really what's happened to Verizon here. It's the first investment grade company I've seen in more than a decade that has a higher dividend than its P.E. ratio. You can just think about that. Mm. Um, we think the dividend is completely safe. The payout ratio is less than 60 percent. Cash flow is strong. It's actually getting better because 5G spending is peaking. Um, but Verizon has languished. And folks say to me, what do you care about? Nobody cares about Verizon. And then I say, well, that's not a bug. That's a feature. That's when you want to buy a stock is when nobody cares about it. Everybody's left it for dead. Mm -hmm. Now, let's compare that with Tesla, of course. Tesla, you know, for all its brilliance, still makes cars. And if the economy slows, folks will buy less cars than analysts are now expecting them to buy. And that's the, that's the hurdle they have to beat. And it's okay if you have a 7 PE like Verizon does not to quite meet expectations. But when you have a 60 or 70 PE, you need constant reassurance, which comes in the form of making or beating the numbers. And I just think in a slowing economy, which I strongly see over the next 6 to 12 months, I think that's going to be tough for Tesla. And I'm not saying Verizon's a better company, whatever that means. I'm just saying I want to make money. And I want to protect myself over the next year. I think Verizon's a better way to do that than Tesla. So the the sort of rejoinder to that would be Verizon's a value trap, and Tesla's growth is worth paying for. Like its performance is worth paying up sure. for. And there's a you know both of these kind of continuing to go where they've where they've gone is more likely than not. I think that's right, but but you have to. I think that's right. That's the contrarian argument. But but why why I disagree with that is I think the pendulums in both cases have swung to extremes. And if I'm correct about the economy slowing, that's when you want to make the switch from the very economically sensitive Tesla to the much less economically uh, sensitive Verizon, which is a tenth of the valuation with a safe 8% dividend. By the way, if we do kind of lapse into a slowdown, rates may come down and the 8% yield, which looks attractive now, will look super attractive totally. if long totally. rates go into the threes or something like that. So that's yet another reason to like the price. No, I love it. Like, listen, the, the line of the day is a company whose dividend yield is higher than its P.E. ratio. Now I, mean, I want, want to run a whole historical screen on that. Uh, Chris, right you, you always bring us the, the best, most provocative ideas. We appreciate. And, and by the way, the home builders, they always work out pretty well. We really appreciate it today. So far, so good. Thank you, Kelly. Exactly. Good Berkshire be following you 12 months later. Chris Grisanti from MAI Capital Management. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. 
Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 